Have you ever heard of Villisca, Iowa? If you have, you might recall that the town is known for one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history. On the evening of June 9th into the early morning hours of June 10th, 1912, a small Queen Anne-style home became the scene of one of America's most mysterious and brutal crimes. Eight people, including six children, were brutally murdered with an axe while they slept. What happened, and who could have possibly done such a thing? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. Josiah Joe B. Moore was born on December 28, 1868, in Illinois to Charles Moore, an Irish immigrant, and Mary Gray. Joe was the sixth out of 13 children. In 1870, just a few years after his birth, the family relocated from Illinois to Iowa. The family eventually settled in Villisca. Not much is known about Joe's early history, but he seemed to be an honest and hardworking man from a sincere and hardworking family. On December 6, 1899, he married Sarah Montgomery in Villisca, Iowa. The couple welcomed their first child, Herman Montgomery Moore, on September 2, 1900. Joe worked for Frank F. Jones for the past nine years, from the early 1890s until around 1902. Jones was a wealthy community member, a banker, and a hardware and implements dealer. Jones was a member of the Villisca City Council for many years and served three terms in the state legislature. He was also a member of the State Board of Education for eight years. Joe was part of the rising middle class and, in 1900, needed a home to support his growing family. He had a stable job and income working for Frank Jones as an implements distributor, and Sarah was able to be a housewife and volunteer in the community. Joe Moore was well-liked and respected in the community and became quite successful in his own right. In 1902, Joe landed a lucrative deal selling John Deere products and became a leader in business and social circles. Joe became head of his own company, J.B. Moore Implement Company, which, in addition to the John Deere products, also sold plows, cedars, press drills, hay tools, wagons, buggies, and other supplies appropriate for farmers of the era. Joe getting the John Deere deal possibly caused a rift with his former employer, Frank Jones. Despite that, things seemed to be going well for Joe Moore and his family in their small town. Sarah, in addition to her housework and child-rearing, was active in their local Presbyterian church. In 1901, the Moores began renting the small, newly constructed doll-like home on East 2nd Street. The original building date is unclear, but the modest, single-family, Queen Anne-style, 913-square-foot home was built sometime in 1900 or 1901. Record dates conflict with the year. The house was likely built from plans supplied by a mail-order house, though this is merely speculation. Architectural services by mails were becoming increasingly common by the turn of the century, and several homes similar to the Moors were built via mail-order supplies. A wood frame, gable front, and wing plan exhibit the style's characteristics. It stands in a residential section of Villisca, just north and east of the town square. The entrance faces south, and the porch, filling the front L of the residence, displayed turnposts. Fishscale shingles decorate the one-and-a-half-story gable and areas below first and second floor windows. 
A stylized Georgian window surmounted by a semicircular trim appears on the second floor of the gable front. On the first floor, two double-hung windows echo the outer units of the Georgian window with clapboard fill between them. The east elevation features two quarter-circle windows in the gable end of the one-story wing surrounded by fish-scale shingles. Below are two double-hung windows symmetrically arranged. The rear of the home has a second porch in the L of the plan and one double-hung window for each floor centered in the gable end. The west side elevation features two double-hung windows on the first floor. There are two stories, and the interior has well-defined rooms and spaces, as was standard for homes of the late 19th and early 20th century. Entries on the front porch provide direct access to the parlor and the kitchen. Access to the first floor bedroom is gained through a door on the north wall of the parlor. A doorway allows one to pass directly from the kitchen to the parlor. The second floor has two bedrooms of nearly equal size. No hallway exists as a passage from one room to another and is gained by moving directly through them. There are two closets, one between the bedrooms and another at the head of the stairwell. The attic wing portion of the house is accessed through the latter closet. The corner lot in which the property sits also had a coal shed and a small barn to house the family's team of horses and other livestock. The family of three soon became a family of four when their second child, daughter Mary Catherine Moore, was born in January 1902. After renting the tiny home for two years, Joe purchased it in 1903 for his growing family. The couple welcomed their following children, Arthur Boyd Moore, born in March 1905, and Paul Vernon Moore, born in January 1907, into the home. It was the only home the Moore children ever knew. On Sunday, June 9, 1912, at around 6 p.m., Joe Moore called the Stillinger household in a nearby town to ask if 11-year-old Lena and 8-year-old Ina could stay the night. The Stillinger sisters were the daughters of a wealthy local farmer, Joseph Stillinger, who had four other children. One of the oldest Stillinger daughters, 14-year-old Blanche, answered the call. Joe asked to speak with Mrs. Stillinger, but she was outside at the moment, so Blanche said she would take the message. Joel told Blanche that the girls were going to church with his family and didn't want to walk back to their grandmother's house in the dark. He asked if it was okay if the girls spent the night, as his daughter Mary Catherine had invited them to sleep over. Blanche agreed and thought it would be okay. That evening, the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters made their way to the Presbyterian Church, about a four- to five-minute walk down the street. The children, including Lena and Ina, participated in a Children's Day program, which Sarah Moore had organized. The program ended at about 9.30 p.m. that night. The family may have lingered and chatted with attendees a few minutes before heading home. Everyone walked home together and arrived at the house sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. The family of six, plus their two young guests, entered the home that night, never to leave the house alive again. Being a Sunday night, Joe had work and the children had school that Monday morning. Joe and Sarah, as well as the six children, would have likely washed up and gone straight to bed, given the time was getting late for a school night. What happened in that house between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. the following morning on June 10, 1912, has become one of the greatest unsolved mass murders in American history. The following day, neighbor Mrs. Mary Peckham, who had seen the Moors before they left for church on Sunday evening, noticed the house was unusually still. 
She was out in her yard hanging laundry between 5 and 6 a.m. by 7 a.m. had grown concerned that there was no movement coming from the moors. It was usually very active and noisy in the mornings, and there would be the everyday hustle and bustle of getting ready for work, school, and doing the daily household chores, such as milking the cow and letting out the chickens and horses. It was the horses neighing in the barn that caused Mrs. Peckham to check on the family. After attempting to wake the moors by knocking on the front door, she let their chickens out and checked on the other animals. Seeing that the animals were still tied, she called the home of Ross Moore, one of Joe's younger brothers who lived nearby, to see whether or not anything had happened in the family that may have given reason for the Moors to be gone from their home. It was around 8.15 a.m. when Mrs. Peckham reached Ross's wife, Jessie, who informed her that nothing had happened in the Moore family and they should be at the house. Concerned, Jessie called Joe's store and spoke with Ed Sully, Joe's employee, Ross then walked over to Joe's store and spoke with Ed Sully, who also said that Joe hadn't been in yet and that he found that unusual. Sully then left the store and went to the Moore home, where he fed the horses. Ross then went over to the house and checked the barn to see if Joe's team was still there. He and Mrs. Peckham then tried rapping on the windows and calling for someone, but the blinds were down and prevented him from seeing into the house. They found the front door had been locked. Rossmore then used his copy of the house key to lock that door. Mrs. Peckham stayed on the porch while Ross looked in the kitchen and then onto the parlor. He noted nothing looked out of place. He then opened the door to the downstairs bedroom. It wasn't until he pushed open the door into the room off the parlor that he saw blood on the sheets. He didn't wait long enough to see anything else and returned outside and told Mrs. Peckham to call the marshal. Ed Sully heard this and went to get Marshal Hank Horton. Horton's search of the house revealed that the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls were all bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon, an axe belonging to Joe, was found in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger sisters were found and it was propped up against the wall. A four-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel was also found on the floor near the axe. Horton confirmed there were fatalities in each bed. He left a call for the coroner, and the sheriff and Sully returned to the store to call the John Dare people in Omaha to alert them of the news. Dr. J. Clark Cooper was the first physician to arrive at the crime scene. Along with Horton and several others, Dr. Cooper found the two Stillinger sisters in the downstairs bedroom off the parlor. The first thing he could see was an arm sticking out. He was unable to recognize the girls. The group continued, climbing up the stairs to the second floor. When they reached the top, they noticed a lamp on the floor at the foot of the bed. Horton moved the lamp out of the way, and they moved into the room. Horton walked around the corner to the left-hand side of the bed, turned the cover back, and identified Joe. Cooper then went into the south room, where he found the four bodies of the Moore children. Dr. Cooper didn't touch any of the bodies. He estimated that the Moors and Stillingers had been dead for at least five to six hours, based on the drying of the blood and the brain matter on the pillows. According to that estimate, the time of the murders would have occurred around 2 to 3 a.m., with a rough estimate of the murders occurring anywhere between 12 a.m. and 5 a.m. Dr. Cooper also testified that he smelled no unusual or antiseptic odor in the house, and that the murderer covered the faces of the victims after being bludgeoned. Dr. F.S. Williams was the second physician to enter the home that morning. 
Dr. Williams noted that the bed in Joe and Sarah's room was facing east with their heads to the west. Joe lay on the left side of the bed on his back. His hand was on his chest, his face beaten to a pulp, and his eyes were gone. In the front bedroom, there was a cot on the left-hand side. On the east side was another bed with a little boy who appeared to be sleeping on his stomach. The top of his head was beaten in. A gauze undershirt was placed on top of his head, which soaked up the blood. Williams lifted the shirt off to identify the child. In the room's southeast corner was another bed with Mary Catherine in it, her head also beaten in with the axe. On the top of her bed was a little dress, blood splattered and partly curled up over her head. The covers pulled up over her face, and in the bed to the southwest corner of the room were two little boys lying, both tops of their heads beaten in and blood splattered on everything. Dr. Williams then went downstairs to look at the Stillinger girls. One of the girls had been struck on the head, squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one-third of the way, and her left hand was thrown back, and it was sticking out below the pillow, and the killer beat both of them in the head. Over the girl at the back of the bed was a little boy's gray coat thrown over one of the girl's heads. There was clothing scattered around the room and on the floor. Authorities found a pair of underwear and other clothes under the bed. The dresses hanging up on the wall and at the foot of the bed had no blood on them. Authorities couldn't rule out sexual assault on Lena Stillinger. Dr. Lindquist, the coroner, called the members of the coroner's jury together in the late afternoon. It was several hours before they entered the Moore home to view the bodies. At 10 p.m., he and County Attorney Ratcliffe finally permitted the undertaker to remove them. It was close to 2 a.m. before the authorities took the bodies out of the house. That means all eight bodies were left in the house nearly 24 hours after death. Two used cigarettes in the attic suggested that the killer or killers patiently waited in the attic until everyone in the house was asleep. The killer or killers entered the home through the front door and awaited in the attic crawlspace while the family was out at the church event. Then, the killer or killers waited until after the family retired to bed and was asleep before striking. The first victims that night were Joe and Sarah. The killer or killers entered their back bedroom, entering through the closet from the attic space. At some point, the killer gouged a spot in the wall from when he lifted the axe to strike Joe in the head. It's unclear why the sound of the axe getting stuck did not wake anyone. The killer also had lamps with them, but the light must have been kept low as to not disturb anyone. The killer or killers used the blade of the axe on Joe, but used the blunt end on the other victims. Joe received more blows from the axe than any other victim. His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were next bludgeoned in the head in the same manner as their parents in the front bedroom. Afterward, the murderer or murderers returned to Joe and Sarah's room to inflict more blows on the couple, knocking over one of Sarah's shoes in the process. The shoe had filled up with blood, and it spilled over onto the floor. Afterward, the killer or killers moved downstairs to the guest bedroom, killing Lena and Nina in a similar manner. Lena appears to have been awake and tried to fight back. She was found lying crosswise on the bed with a defensive wound on her arm. Her nightgown was pushed up to her waist, and she was wearing no undergarments, leading law enforcement to speculate that she may have been sexually molested. 
A four-pound slab of bacon was taken out of the icebox and laid next to the axe. The killer or killers would have had to pass through the kitchen before entering the downstairs bedroom. One theory for the bacon slab was that the killer may have held it under their nose as a means not to smell the bodies, rather than being used as a snack. Investigators also found untouched food and bloody water during the search. Law enforcement believed that all of the victims, except for Lena Stillinger, had been asleep when murdered. After bludgeoning all eight people in the house, the killer or killers returned to the kitchen, appearing to have cleaned up in a pan of water. It's unknown whether the killer prepared any of the food or why it remained untouched. Nothing was taken from the home, so robbery was ruled out as a motive. Immediately following the murders, word spread of the horrific incident. Nearly a hundred curiosity seekers would enter the home, looking at the bodies and handling evidence, such as the murder weapon. Curiosity seekers heavily damaged the crime scene and any evidence the killer or killers had left behind. A clairvoyant was called to shed light on the case, but they couldn't provide any credible information. Early in the investigation, authorities believed that the killer or killers would be brought to justice quickly. At the time of their deaths, Joe was 43, his wife Sarah 39, Herman Montgomery was 11, Mary Catherine was 10, Arthur Boyd was 7, and Paul Vernon was only 5. The Stillinger sisters Lena Gertrude and Ina May were 12 and 8 respectively. These murders deeply impacted this small town. People wanted to know who would do such a thing, though investigators didn't have many clues. While Joe and his family were well-liked in the small town, a few suspects came to mind. Joe had a brother-in-law deemed a possible threat, Sam Moyer, as well as his former employer, Frank Jones. The attack on Joe seemed gruesome and personal, indicating the killer had an intimate relationship or personal grievance with Joe Moore. The family and Stillinger girls perhaps were taken as collateral damage or some sort of mercy kill. Perhaps that might also explain why the killer covered the children's heads afterward. There was also the fact the killer or killers covered the mirrors in the house. Was this not to see themselves in a reflection? Was the killer or killer someone very close to the Moors? Immediately following the deaths, the house was turned over to Ross Moore and several other of Joe's siblings. On June 17th, Ross Moore, along with four other siblings, received $25,000 from Joe's estate. This is the equivalent of over $700,000, a large sum in 1912. Ross Moore, a younger sibling of Joe, was named executor of his estate. Ross Moore worked as a druggist in town and seemed close to his older brother. No one in the Moore family was ever considered a suspect in the crime. The small home would remain in the Moore's possession for three years before the siblings sold the property to J.H. Giesman in 1915. The one constant over the five-year period during which the investigation was carried out was that the murders divided the community. Those who felt that Frank Jones was guilty joined the Iowa Protective Association, as well as those who felt Reverend Kelly was unjustly accused. Individuals who belonged to the Methodist Church and felt Jones was responsible for the crimes left the congregation. Jones was asked to step down from the Villisca National Bank's board of directors. The divisive nature of the conspiracy theory was not just a matter of who believed Frank Jones was guilty. The division occurred along lines that also marked the boundaries between the elite of the community and the up-and-coming middle class. The tension between Jones and Moore prior to the murders played a role in the division. Jones was known to be condescending, and his attitude did not help his cause. 
But ultimately, the line of demarcation between Velisca's social structure and the rest of the community was the most accurate gauge of who believed Jones was guilty and who thought his involvement was preposterous. There were exceptions to this generalization, of course, but integral. By 1917, the focus of the investigation had turned to Reverend George Kelly, who was tried twice for the murder. The first trial ended in a hung jury, while the second ended in acquittal. Kelly was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. He was described as a peculiar man, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown when he was younger. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. On June 8, 1912, he came to Velisca to teach at the Children's Day Services, which the Moore family attended. He left town between 5 a.m. and 5.50 a.m. on June 10, 1912, just hours before the bodies were discovered. Reverend Kelly had confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe his confession. However, in the weeks that followed, Kelly displayed a fascination with the case. He wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased. This aroused suspicion, and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly asking for details that the minister might know about the murders. He replied with great detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessing the murders. His known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because he committed the murders or he imagined his account. In 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. Investigators speculated again that Kelly could be the murderer for the Moore family. In 1917, Kelly was arrested for the Velisca murders. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. Between 1936 and 1994, the house underwent many upgrades and transformations. The front and back porches were closed in, plumbing and electricity were added, and the outbuildings were removed or replaced. The house changed hands several times, primarily used as a rental home. Between 1963 and 1971, the Velisca Savings and Loan owned the property, suggesting the home had fallen into foreclosure. In 1971, the house was purchased by Kendrick and Vance, and only a month later, sold to Darwin Kendrick. Kendrick remained the owner, again using the property as a rental, until he sold it to Rick and Vicki Sprung on January 1, 1994. A few months later, a real estate agent approached Darwin Lynn in hopes of interesting him in the property. Lynn was from Villisca and graduated from Villisca High School in 1953. In 1994, he and his wife owned and operated the Olson Lynn Museum located in the town square in downtown Villisca. At the time, the Moore house was in danger of being raised had Lynn not decided to purchase it. He reportedly lowballed an offer on the property and told the agent it would expire at midnight on the first of the year, and then he forgot about it. He was surprised when the call came just before the deadline, and he became the owner of the notorious home. A few months later, the couple decided to restore the home to its original condition, as it would have been in 1912, obtaining the necessary funds for the restoration. Work has been performed to remove replacement siding, to repaint the clapboards, and to re-roof the structure. Even aluminum storm windows have been removed from the dwelling. Electricity, minus an air conditioner unit, has also been removed to make the residence feel the way it did back in 1912. The most significant change in the Moore House appears to be the removal of two brick chimneys. 
One was on the east elevation of the dwelling, and the other was centrally placed within the gable front porch of the house. According to historical accounts and floor plans drawn by the current owner, the interior spatial arrangements have been well preserved. The National Register of Historic Places added the Moore House in 1997. Presently, it's used as a museum and a tourist attraction. Tours are regularly given, and brave guests can spend the night in the house. For more information on the Velisca House Museum, please visit www.velizcaiowa.com. Today, this crime continues to impact the small community. As a result, some residents still hesitate to discuss the event. The local Heritage Days Festival is the community's attempt to expand its image beyond that of an axe murder town. A new division has arisen. Residents are split over how the Moore House should be used. Since Darwin Lynn purchased the home in 1994, the residence has been known as a paranormal hotspot. It's considered a bona fide haunted house, with video, audio, and other paranormal evidence captured on digital recording devices. Strange things are reported to happen, like disembodied giggles and screams, unexplained movements, and a particular fog moving from room to room when the train passes through the town at the time of the murders. Other strange behaviors from visitors that indicate the possibility of possessions are just some activities demonstrating a ghostly presence at the Velisca Axe Murder House. So who do you think was the likely suspect? Was it Jones? Kelly? Could the two possibly have worked together? Was there a conspiracy between several community members? What happened in that house over a hundred plus years ago will never be solved. Suspects and evidence are long gone. All that remains is the knowledge that on one terrible night in June 1912, an entire family plus two young guests died violently as they slept, likely never knowing what happened to them in that small home on that terrible night, possibly haunting it forever. Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including references and photos, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com. Until next time, goodbye.